Hello and welcome once again to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite dining spots. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm speaking to politics lecturer at the University of York, Remy Adekoya, about his new book, Biracial Britain, A Different Way of Looking at Race. My next guest is a lecturer of politics at the University of York, whose name has been seen in multiple major news titles in the UK and the US. He's a regular columnist for the Nigerian news site Business Day, a son, a husband, a new father, half Nigerian, half Polish, and author of a book released this year, Biracial Britain, A Different Way of Looking at Race, Remy Adekoya. Remy, welcome. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. And more importantly, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) This is, of course, a book about being of mixed racial heritage in 21st century Britain and the dual front on which mixed race people seemingly spend their entire lives fighting. There's the fight for individuality, distinction, freedom from categorization. And then there's the fight for acceptance, association and belonging, battles that are hard to win simultaneously. If I may, let's start with you. You're, You're half Nigerian, half Polish, as I've just mentioned. Tell us about your background how you came to write this book and what specifically you wanted this book to reveal. So my background is I was uh, born to a Nigerian father and Polish mother in Nigeria. I spent uh, the first 17 years of my life in Nigeria. So I went to primary and secondary school in Nigeria. We start a little bit earlier. So I'd finished uh, my secondary school by the age of 17. And so my initial experiences of being mixed race were of being of mixed black, white heritage in a virtually all black society. And so there was definitely that sense of difference. So that sense of difference is clearly communicated to you at a very early stage. So, for instance, walking on the streets with my white Polish mom, kids often, um, uh, you know, would point at us and uh, and call us the term, which is the Nigerian equivalent of uh, white people. Uh, And there usually wasn't anything, um, uh, almost always wasn't anything sort of malicious in it, but it was a sort of pointing out that, oh, look, 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 you know, white people. I actually can't remember a time when I didn't feel different from the immediate environment around me. But of course, you see, there's different kinds of different. There is, oh, you are a slightly or very different person from us, full stop. And there is a, oh, you are a different and worse kind of person from us. So in the Nigerian context, being mixed white definitely didn't qualify me uh, for being seen or didn't entail being seen as a different, worse kind of person. And then I moved to Poland after that, uh, after my secondary school there. And so now I was living in a virtually all-white society. <laughs> and, and that experience was very different. And here the experience was uh, often negative. So when people looked at me in Poland, they didn't see a mixed-race person, uh, much less someone of, of, of Polish heritage. They saw a Black person, simply. And, you know, stereotypes and and perceptions of black people. um, So I'm talking, you know, sort of late 1990s when I moved to Poland. Um, uh, So we're very negative then. Uh, And generally, you know, I got called all sorts of names, you know, on the streets and things like that. So that kind of, you know, crude sort of uh, racism, uh, you know, which used to also exist in in Britain, but probably more so in the 1970s, 1980s. So I experienced all that. 
Uh, and then definitely in Poland, I started to see myself, you know, and generally identify as a black person because of those experiences. And I remember my mom, and I, I wrote about this in the book, when my mom visited me in Poland a couple of years later, told me after a time, she said, you know, what's going on? You start every sentence now with, you know, oh, we Nigerians this, you know, we black people that, we Africans this, you know, what, 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 where's all this coming from? You know, this wasn't the way you were talking when, when you were growing up in Nigeria, you know, what's all this, um, what's all this Malcolm X stuff and all that, you know, coming out from you, like, you know, so, so strongly, you know, and, you know, I thought about it and I, and I, you know, I knew she was right. Indeed, I'd stopped thinking of myself as an individual, but I'd uh, gone into a very sort of racialist kind of thinking, you know, of how I, I viewed the world, essentially, because of my personal experiences there. Uh, until, you know, things sort of improved in Poland when Poland joined the EU in 2004, you know, more foreigners started coming into the country. The country sort of opened up more. Uh, Poles started traveling around the world more, you know, around Europe here, coming to countries like the UK and other countries where there's uh, significant numbers of black or brown skinned people. And so, you know, the general atmosphere in Poland became, you know, much more tolerant. It became easier to breathe, so to speak. So you had that experience of two worlds and two very different ways of being regarded. Uh, although, as you mentioned, in Nigeria, and we'll come to this later, you were subjected to what you might call low-level racial slurs. I wouldn't call them slurs, uh, but othering, definitely. What is called othering, definitely. I'm technically mixed race. I'm, I'm, for the most part, English, but I'm a quarter Maltese. And as such, I've passed for a white Briton my entire life. But reading this book was really eye-opening because... The crude assumption I think many people often make is that mixed race people, to use a particularly apt phrase, uh, have less skin in the game when it comes to racism. But the picture we get in this book shows just how alienating life can be for people who fall between the cracks, particularly when they're told you don't belong here by both halves of their heritage. And when any attempt to self-identify is rejected as either evasive or even selfish, I'm going to ask you to explain, going back to the point we just made, what the words Oyinbo and Muzungu mean. Yes. So they mean essentially literally white person. They mean essentially literally white person. So it doesn't have a negative connotation. It's not like gaijin, for instance, in, in Japanese, uh, which meant uh, or means, sorry, I think foreign devil. So it doesn't have that kind of negative um, connotation. It simply means it's literally like saying, you know, black person or right. white person. And I wouldn't say that, you know, sort of um, I got uh, uh, that, you know, I got a message from from general Nigerian society that I didn't belong there. You know that I wouldn't go that far. I definitely got a message that people sort of, you know, wondered, you know, if I identified with the society, you know, they obviously questioned the authenticity of my Nigerianness. In Nigeria, of course, you know, there's ethnicity. So there are various ethnic groups. So what really matters there is, you know, what ethnic group you are associated with. So the real questions I got regarding the authenticity of my identity within Nigeria was regarding how much of Yoruba culture. So my dad belonged to the Yoruba ethnic group. So people, you know, would question sort of, you know, oh, can I speak Yoruba language? Or probably I don't know the customs. Probably I don't know the culture because, you know, I have this white mother. So yes, so I'm not really a real Yoruba person. So that's where people would, yeah, on, on that they would focus. But the Nigerian identity is so broad uh, and all-encompassing that, you know, there is no sort of strict connection of that to a particular kind of culture or even, you know, so much a skin color. Yeah. There was one recollection you make being age nine at a, a juju dance competition. And this was a sort of a test in Nigeria of your authenticity. 
Yeah, so um, uh, thank you for that. So it's it's a great example um, uh, you give because that juju music, again, as I just mentioned, is connected to um, ethnicity within Nigeria. So juju music is a kind of music um, uh, which is played and popular within people from my dad's particular ethnic group within Nigeria, uh, which is dominates the southwest of the country. And so there was a dancing competition. Both my parents were there and my mom definitely... And, and, you know, and, and there's this thing in Nigeria, so, you know, kids, you know, so they, they gather kids around, uh, they play, the DJ plays a song, and kids dance to that song, then the DJ stops, and the audience takes a vote, you know, by acclamation, you know, who won that round of dancing, um, you know, and then the winner is decided, the second or third, by, like I say, popular acclaim, then the DJ plays another song, usually from another genre of music, kids dance again, you know, the same process continues, and at the end, a final winner is pronounced. And so earlier on in the competition, when, you know, it was rap songs being played or pop songs being played, I did quite well. But then the final round came and they played juju music, which is this, like I say, traditional Yoruba music, which I had no clue how to dance to. So when they played the song, I just froze, you know. Then I started, you know, trying to move and, you know, sort of the crowd burst in laughter. Oh, you know, look at the Oimbo, you know, <laughs> he doesn't know how to dance juju music. And, you know, that, of course, you know, killed all my self-confidence. And, you know, from that moment, I was just, you know, praying for the song to end and for this torture to end. And so overall, I didn't win the dancing competition. So and, and what was important here is that, like I say, my dad, I once saw my dad dancing to that music much later in life. And he was equally terrible at it. <laughs> but you see, nobody laughed at him mm -hmm. because he never had to prove right. Yorubaness. Because when you are 100%, so to speak, you know, both your parents are Yoruba, you don't have to prove your Yorubaness. Nobody questions it. But when you are mixed, when there's a foreign element in you, then you have to prove your authenticity. And this is, I think, an experience which many mixed race people have, irrespective of, you know, culture or racial configuration, that there's always that sort of um, a doubt there, you know, that, oh, are you really, you know, are you really Maltese? Or, you know, Jack, how Maltese are you really? You know, <laughs> sort of, how British are you really? And you have to prove it, you know. Uh, so, so that's where the sort of um, problem comes in. The example you give there, it made me think about the fact that so much of this authenticity question comes down to how much pressure is applied at home. To what extent do you think that responsibility for building a child's self-confidence lies with the family more than perhaps it does with the outside community or society at large? So I think um, uh, crucial, and this is very important for parents of, of young mixed race um, uh, children in Britain, and there's an increasing number of, of those kinds of parents. So it's really crucial are these early experiences, really crucial are the signals the child gets from the parents. So I noticed that children who, so, you know, first of all, overall theme, nothing replaces unconditional love when it comes to fostering a sense of confidence in a child. And this is irrelevant, whether it's a mixed race child or a monoracial child whatever. Uh, children who clearly receive the unconditional love from either both their parents, if they, if they lived uh, at home with both their parents, or from the parent who might have brought them up on their own, you know, are different human beings, really, uh, from those who didn't receive that at a young age. Mm. More of a confidence in them, and they're able to generally deal with life situations much better, and they're generally you know, um, less sort of prone, they are less easily hurt by the world, okay? Because that unconditional love gives you a, a shield, 
a shield. And it's a shield which you carry for the rest of your life. And this is something which was very clear to me, irrespective of whether I was speaking to people who were 20 or 50. Let's talk about colorism and the one drop rule, which which I'll ask you to explain in a moment. This is a dogma that appeals to both proud BAME communities and white supremacists at the same time. The idea, in other words, that if you're not completely white, you're black. Whoever applies it, it's really a method of controlling people, isn't it? So this, this um, is strictly connected to the black-white mix. And, you know, so what started up by white, um, white supremacists and segregationists in America hundreds of years ago wanted to essentially limit, uh, limit the number of people who could qualify, you know, for whiteness. Uh, and, and to also make sure, you know, to sort of, so, so, so to limit the white race to be as, quote-unquote, pure as possible, to limit the potential of people, for instance, you know, who used to be called mulattoes in those days, so children, for instance, of slave owners and slaves, because there were children like that at the time, you know, for them never to be able to qualify as white, but also to essentially be black. And so the rule was developed that um, a, drop of, a, a drop of black blood means you're essentially black. And this has created all sorts of problems um, for people uh, over the years. And, you know, and there were stories, of course, of people who were born, who have some black heritage, but didn't look it, and who spent their whole lives uh, hiding that part of their heritage and trying to pretend essentially that they were full white. And then, you know, somebody might find out and, and oh my God, it was, you know, a huge problem. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so that's on the, and that still applies up till today. So for instance, 2007, um, uh, Barack Obama, then candidate Barack Obama, I remember, was asked in a, in a CBS interview that, oh, you know, your mother is white. Uh, you were raised by your, you know, white mother and your white grandparents. Um, when did you decide you were black? And I remember what he said, and, and in his answer is everything. He said, well, I don't think I ever decided I was black, that the reality is simply that in American society, if you look the way I look, you are seen as black. And that when a child, a child senses this pretty early on, and you know, when you see that, okay, that's how people see me, you also start to think of yourself in that way. And that this is why so many people in his position in the U.S. simply think of themselves as black. Because, you know, how do you not think of yourself as a thing if everybody else around you tells you you are a thing? You know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Yeah. That's really pushing nonconformism to a, to, a, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a very high level. The other high profile example of this is Tiger Woods, who, as you probably know, described himself as a Kaplan Asian quite early on in his career. The Caucasian black Asian, which spoke to all of his heritages. Conversely, he was lambasted by a lot of African Americans for suggesting that you could identify as anything other than black if you had black heritage. So that's the other side of it. Um, what's your perspective on this, the way it cuts both ways? Yeah, so you see, so this has a lot to do with sort of, um, you know, group strategies, history, and psychology. So historically, Black people have been denied prestige on a global stage as a result of their blackness. And so this is why when black people see people who are mixed race, uh, lighter skinned, who don't emphasize their blackness, they interpret this as, ah, aha. So this person is trying to distance themselves from blackness because they think blackness is something to be ashamed of, yeah? The way Michael Jackson did. They think blackness is something to be ashamed of, that is a stigma. 
Aha, you know, so there's a there's a defensive reaction like that, you know, or 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 even oh, so what they think they are better than black people, yeah? They think because they're mixed race that they're better than black people, that they're higher up the hierarchy than we are. And so there's that kind of there's that kind of reaction, there's that kind of defensive reaction, there's that kind of annoyance sometimes. Like I said, because there have been cases in history of mixed race people, especially light skinned, trying to pretend they have no black heritage whatsoever, and this is humiliating. So so there's that. So there's that element there. Then there's also the element if you look at it, if you if, if you think in group psychology uh, of sort of wider strategies of achieving objectives, then it pays for our numbers to be as high as possible as any group, okay? Because the way groups get generally what they want, the way they achieve their aims, you know, as, as, as postulated by whatever leaders they might have at any point in time, you know, having numbers behind you always helps. And so from a strategic point of view, it makes sense for black leaders to want those classified as black to be as many as possible, okay? One, we can then say, oh, we are speaking on behalf of 5 million people, for instance, and not 500,000 people, okay? Uh, so you always have a bigger claim when you can claim, you know, the, there's more of you, you know? Uh, so it makes sense from that point of view to try and keep the group as large as possible, yeah? So to try and keep all those with a black heritage identifying black rather than having them cut out from the group. There's a scene in the book where you describe two mixed race friends with two daughters, both of whom have known each other for a very long time really since they were little and who as you recount one day fall out when one refers to the other as black by way of encouragement and the other takes offense and rejects them and there's tears and so on bearing in mind these girls were born within the last 10 years and brought up in a multi-ethnic community it's quite unsettling as you yourself write that there should be such scenes among children today what what's happening there so, okay, first of all, you know, there's a whole thing, and this is not discussed I mean, in Britain and should. So there's a whole different psyche generally among minorities, not just black and brown skin minorities here in Britain, generally among minorities. And studies have shown what, you know, social scientists have called the psychological asymmetry. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Sunnis in Iraq or Alawites in, 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 in pre-Civil War Syria, or Jama the Jamaican community here in Britain, there is always a sort of greater angst among minorities as to their position and status within society. That is sometimes alleviated if, say, that particular group is very economically successful, for instance, because there's a strength that comes from that or there's a feeling of strength that comes from that. But if we are not just a minority, but also don't seem to have much economic power, don't seem to have much political power, there's a general sense of vulnerability that will be amongst that minority population. And this is a general standard for human behavior. If it was the case that black children felt that the overwhelming majority of white people have a positive opinion of black people, they'd have no problem with being black. Of course not, you know. So clearly they sense that mm, it seems, you know, this being black thing is not really seen as such a positive thing. 
you know. And now the question is why? Of course, you know, think about it, you know, you watch, you watch media, you watch news about, okay, what kind of black people do you see in the news? So apart from the people you see here in Britain, let's say you're watching world news. So for instance, about Africa, you know, the main black continent where you see that, you know, you see a lot of poverty, conflict, all those kind of things. There doesn't seem to be much positive coming out of there. You know, and of course, for the younger generation, they do have some musicians. They listen to, you know, African pop stars, etc. But on balance, I would say the general sort of message you can get coming out is that, you know, there's something somewhere not really working within, you know, this black group that I belong to. And so and so these are how these sorts of complexes develop. And this speaks to the problem of social mobility, which is a very interesting thread, because when a lot of your interviewees, for example, describe going to school and black female students would see their male counterparts with white women, they would feel jealousy and anger and resentment about this. And similarly, where black men have often seen black women going with white men, there is a similar defensiveness. I mean, even the story you tell just then of the two girls, how they fell out, they fell out because one of the girls who quite liked a boy was told that he didn't find black girls attractive. It all boils down to, you know, the the opinions others have about us. When you mention that opinion of attractiveness, that's a really difficult one actually to try and figure out. I think it's easier to actually deal with issues of, you know, are people able to uh, have equal opportunities for jobs? Are people able to have equal opportunities to get into good universities? Those are things I think we can, you know, deal with more realistically, actually, and probably should start with those kinds of things. Because, you know, how you are actually going to, you know, try and uh, impose a situation whereby uh, more of from the majority population of, say, white males will be interested in developing uh, relationships uh, in the sense of intimate relationships with um, uh, with black women. How you actually go about imposing that, I don't really see, you know, and I'm not even really sure if it's something, you know, we can or should do. I, I don't know how you would go about that. You said recently on a Radio 4 program about the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah that it's really down to the 66 million people living in Britain today to tackle racism on the ground in our own lives, not members of the royal family. To what extent do you think it matters if the royal family is racist? It matters because of those um, uh, things uh, I talked about, like regarding uh, prestige factors. So those are important things. Those are important things to people um, psychologically. The reason why it was such a big deal for so many, not all definitely, but for so many um, within the black communities of Britain that, you know, Meghan appeared and married into the family was because of the prestige associated with being married into the royal family, because it doesn't get more prestigious than that in this country. Okay, the the highest level of prestige you can achieve in this country is, you know, to be in the royal family. And so, and so that's why this was so, this was so, it was such a powerful, such a powerful moment for so many. Plus, of course, the whole idea of her as a princess. And here we get to the looks part. What is the ideal of a beautiful woman, you know, that girls learn about, you know, growing up? It's a princess. You know, the princess is beautiful. The princess is the ideal. The princess is worshipped, essentially, by everyone around her. You know, and so when Meghan came, so you have this quote unquote, you know, black princess 
who came and who is not just marrying into the royal family. So there's that prestige aspect, but she's, she's beautiful. She's pretty. Everybody, you know, is talking about this. She's a princess. So, so she, she's that who all of us would wish we could be if we're talking from the point of view of black women in the sense of we all wish we could be treated this way. Has there been a huge opportunity for British soft power missed there? Oh, definitely. I think so. And, um, you know, I don't know the details, of course, of, you know, what was really going on when she when she was around and, you know, who said what to whom and, you know, who started what and, and et cetera. So obviously, I, I, I don't know all that. Mm. And I do think it's unfair to just, you know, jump to jump to conclusions that, oh, it was definitely um, this or it was definitely that. But looking at it from the point of view of consequences, uh, definitely the consequences, you know, as a whole, have not been positive, you know, for the royal family, and they've definitely not been positive for the image of Britain as a whole. And and and, and as I said, Emma, recently, you know, Britain has always one huge advantage it's had. It's always done soft power very well, you know. And sometimes it's incredible to actually read some of the accounts uh, of the colonial encounters. Uh, between, for instance, I, I, I wrote my, my PhD dissertation and a lot focus of it on, on colonial Nigeria. And sometimes it's actually incredible to see the cordial relationships and the cordial attitude, the positive attitude of even leaders of the pro-independence movements in Nigeria towards the British. Could you give me an example of this that you found most profound? That I found most profound and um, simply just, you know, comments which would be made uh, like I said, amongst um, uh, top Nigerian um, uh, intellectual um, uh, leaders of the time, you know, towards the angle of, for instance, some of them would say that, you know, oh, you know, the British, you know, they're, you know fundamentally fair people. Um, of course, we don't want them here. And, 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 and this whole, you know, colonial empire thing is wrong. Definitely. But, you know, generally, you know, they're um, uh, quite fair people, which is an incredible thing to imagine, you know, being said by people you know, under your colonial subjugation. You, you understand, you know, that's not the kind of thing you would expect them to say. But it's because of that, you know, British ability to be tactful, uh, to be very good with language, you know, to know how to sort of, you know, um, resolve conflicts in that kind of diplomatic way. And, you know, the British have a, have a way of talking and, you know, and, and coming across, you know, really as nice and sort of, you know, calming down situations. So that is really very effective communication. It's really very effective communication. And this is why even people who, you know, had every right to actually strongly dislike the British, very often, some of those top leaders in private, obviously, they would say this more in, you know, private conversations within each other, um, uh, you know, would say, you know, these people are not so bad after all. Other colonial powers didn't have that. There was no incident of, you know, of people, you know, for instance, um, pro-independence leaders within Portuguese colonies or Belgian colonies speaking positively of, of, of those ones. That didn't happen. To what extent do you agree that Britain increasingly imports a lot of its racial anxieties from the US? Generally speaking, the US um, uh, clearly has uh, an oversized, I would argue, um, influence on, on, you know, general world debate. So generally, anything which happens in the US, uh, which touches on a social issue that also is a thing in other societies, you know, those societies will often discuss them in the context of, oh, how does it work in America? So, yes, I do think um, too much is definitely drawn from that. Why does it happen? It happens because the U.S. is the only other 
Western, so white majority society, to host a significant black and brown skinned population. Okay, the same cannot be said of Belgium or Denmark or, or even Canada or any of those or any of those other countries. If France doesn't hold ethnicity um, figures. There's probably a fair, definitely a strong, um, uh, a, a, a sizable minority population there. So I think number one, it comes from this. You know, the U.S. is, like I said, um, uh, that key country that is somehow like us regarding demographics. That's one. Two, there's obviously the Anglo-Saxon connection. It's part mm. of the English-speaking world. So, you know, mm. you wouldn't expect uh, people here to focus on what's happening in Germany with minorities in Germany. But they will focus on, again, so there's that, you know, Anglo-Saxon um, uh, sort of connection. Plus, I think if we're talking intellectual trends, again, the U.S. tends to influence many other societies with its intellectual trends, be it economic, philosophical, um, uh, maybe not so much philosophical, but economic definitely, and that applies also to race. So that's also another reason why those trends sort of um, those trends sort of filter down here. This is sometimes called the African century, the one we're living through. Sometimes the Chinese century. I was wondering how hopeful or excited are you for the former of the two? I hope things um, uh, work out well, definitely um, uh, for the African continent. I do see a lot of challenges. Uh, which I don't think are being properly addressed at the moment, uh, and 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 it's going it's going to be rough, especially following COVID. So even rich countries like Britain have suffered huge economic blows because of COVID, and have spent an incredible amount of money just trying to you know keep people from you know having to source food from food banks um, uh, in the past one two years. But you know other countries countries in Africa don't have that kind of money. There's no help coming to people from, you know, there are no follow schemes, you know, handing and paying, paying people's salaries. This is not happening. And so, unfortunately, I think the post-COVID reality of Africa is going to be incredibly difficult. And definitely today, the continent as a whole is much worse off than it was a year ago. And it wasn't that well off a year ago. And so in the short term, I definitely see huge challenges. You know, if those challenges are confronted, then definitely in the long term, so if we're talking, you know, a decade from now, uh, I do definitely see huge potential on, 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 on the continent. Jay Leno, the American talk show host, uh, has recently sort of issued a public apology about the many, many jokes he's made at the expense of East Asian people, saying that he always knew that this was racism like any other. Is racism against the Chinese in particular still a conversation we've yet to have here properly in Britain and the West more broadly? I think so, definitely. And um, and the racism, of course, towards um, uh, Chinese is still, because I, I maintain very strongly that people tend to feel better than those they are materially better than. Hmm. This is a general rule. Uh, the rich tend to feel better than the poor on an individual basis. A rich white Brit will tend to feel better than a poor white Brit. And it then works on group basis. So white people generally will feel better than black people because collectively what white people are much better off than uh, black people are from a material point of view. So this is an unfortunate aspect of human nature. And, you know, lots have been written on classism. And we see that every day um, here in the UK. Now, with the Chinese case, the Chinese have, I think, vastly improved perceptions of what Chineseness means uh, in the world in the past 30, 40 years. So now, you know, everybody talks about China as a superpower. In academia, where I am, 
you know, you can't essentially have a module that discusses international politics without loads of articles on, you know, what is China going to do on this issue? What is China going to do on that issue? You know, is, is China going to take over from the US, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that focus even exists lends prestige to Chineseness. However, at an individual level, if we're talking per capita wealth, people still hear stories of Chinese migrants, unfortunately dying in trucks, trying to get into the UK. So clearly, the message that still comes to people is that, aha, so clearly things are not rosy that there. So people still know that, you see. I believe it would be, uh, there, would, there would be an, a much better perception today of Chineseness if in per capita wealth, China was at such a stage that no Chinese person would need to risk their life getting into, you know, being locked up, you know, in a lorry, just trying to get into Britain. Because there's no Japanese people risking their lives, getting into trucks, trying to come into Britain, there's none. I'm not saying that, you know, once a group becomes wealthy, then all prejudice towards it uh, disappears. No, but a different kind of prejudice appears. So look at the kinds of stereotypes that are targeted at, um, uh, at, at Jewish minorities. It's not the stereotype of lazy, uh, no good as ineffective, etc. It's actually the opposite stereotype that, oh my God, you know, they're so clever, they actually run the world. Well, I've yet to read David Baddiel's Jews Don't Count, but I'm prepared to have my mind blown by all accounts of those who have read it. Your new daughter is five days old. Your wife is Nigerian, is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I ask, how do all the things that you've written in this book, all the stories you've heard, all the experiences you've had to date, lead you to think about what it means to now be embarking on the project of being a father? I'll tell you one thing. So it's been five days. And we've already had a couple of questions from different people, as luck would have it um, from the Nigerian side, who ask immediately, is she light-skinned? That question the royal family would ask in reverse. Yeah. And and this, not just one person, not two person, it's come from a couple, not two people, it's come from a couple of of sources. So because I am mixed and my wife is 100%, so to speak, um, uh, Nigerian, people didn't know how the kids, because the kids of people like me and my wife, that combination of, you know, a mixed black and white person and a full black person can come out, you know, various shades of skin colors. So the kid could be very dark skinned or could be light skinned. You never know. And so people didn't know. Uh, people weren't sure how, how the kid, um, how, how she would come out. And so that was a key question people ask. oh, you know, is she light? You know, and it is asked in the context of, oh, it would be good if she were, you know. Uh, my wife generally is very annoyed by those questions and doesn't really answer those um, uh, questions, but they are definitely asked in that context of, oh, it would be nice if she were, you know. <laughs> it would be better if she were than if she wasn't, yeah. Um, so so this is a real thing. As the father of a child um, uh, here in Britain, I still do think this is probably, uh, definitely in the Western world, uh, one of the best societies where my daughter could be growing up as uh, someone of color, as someone, you know, who has um, parents of our heritage. So I can't really think of another country I'd like to raise her in or I choose to raise her in over Britain. Why is that? It's because of my personal experiences here have been generally very positive. There have been a couple of incidents um, uh, questionable, but overall, we definitely both um, uh, feel quite good here. We both feel quite good here. We, you know, we breathe easy here. 
Of course, there'll be, you know, there'll be challenges. I think a lot depends also on the region of Britain in which we live. You know, I mean, there are regions which are, you know, more open, you know, where you generally feel more welcome. There are regions where you feel less so. Um, definitely one thing I will uh, try to do, like I said, key for me is that unconditional love. That's that's number one. You know, if I want to make her strong, uh, we need to give her that, you know. If we give her that, everything else will be easier. You know, nothing will be easy because life is not easy, um, but it will be easier. And with regards to identity, I definitely, you know, my wife is great. I mean, you know, she's um, a full Nigerian, but she takes Polish lessons. You know, she tries to teach herself Polish because she also wants, you know, the child to, to recognize that she does also have a Polish heritage, you know. Uh, even though, unfortunately, um, my mom is late, and so she won't have that, you know, direct contact with a Polish, um, with a Polish family member. But my wife wants her to have that um, uh, Polish connection and to also, you know, have something there and if she decides to develop her interest in that direction if she starts asking me questions you know and um, later on that oh you know about poland and you know how is it in poland or you know could we visit poland i'd definitely be happy to you know to um uh, to show it to her so i'll try to definitely we'll try to talk to her about you know nigeria you know what um what nigerianness is you know what polishness is and let her essentially gravitate towards whatever um whatever you know identity um uh, you know she feels um, uh, a need to. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Remy. Um, and I wish you all the very, very best. The last question I have is a question I ask all my guests who uh, I ideally like to meet at their favourite places to eat and drink, as you know, on the Booking Club. This is a particularly interesting question to ask somebody of split heritage. I've been to many, many great Polish restaurants here in London where I live. I haven't been to nearly enough Nigerian places. But where would you say is your favourite place to eat and does it have any connection whatsoever to your heritage i'm trying to remember now we went to a, a really good restaurant with excellent food in uh, it was in peckham 44 double four something like that and food there was definitely um uh, food there was definitely excellent aside that there's fazenda in leeds which i love which is brazilian and they do this brazilian you know where they you know come and you know with grilled meat and sort of cut it in front of you and and so that's fantastic. Me and my wife love that. But I do have to tell you that um, post COVID, um, uh, if you were to take me somewhere in London, I'd actually ask to go to a Polish restaurant because there are no Polish restaurants here in Sheffield. So I definitely actually like to go to um, uh, a Polish restaurant in London if you were to uh, take me somewhere. When lockdown lifts and if you have the time. I can take you to one as authentic and as hospitable as anywhere you've been to in Poland. Okay, okay. I'll hold you to that. Thank you so much, Remy. Okay, thank you, Jack. Take care.